Good morning, this is Heim Goodman-Strauss with The Math Factor, and we're standing in a very crowded lobby of the outside the gathering for Gardner. And with me right here is, is Rob Schneider who, of Apples and Stereo, who's, uh, I'm pulling him away from a conversation. Hey, Rob, nice to oh, see you. Oh, so, so, hi, Heim, how are you, my man? That's Daniel Ardelli. Daniel was just recently knighted by the Hungarian government for his work on spidrons. Yes, I arrested. I am arrested. Oh, you are the policeman. What? Hey, what's your website, Daniel? Uh, www.spidron.hu. Thanks. And uh, what are you up to these days, Rob? This talk was incredible. Such beautiful art. I loved your hand drawings, too. Instead of computer drawings, he had all hand... He doesn't want to see them. Hang on. We'll get to it. Okay. Hang on just a second. (laughs) Yes. Excuse me. May I I interrupt? I'm standing here with Neil Calkin and Eric Domain. And uh, we're podcasting. We're going, what I'm doing is I'm just milling. Yeah. And we were actually talking so, about hypers a moment ago. Okay, tell us, uh, <laughs> tell our, tell our uh, podcast listeners what that is. Well, a hypar is a hyperbolic paraboloid, and, and probably Eric Domain knows more about these than anyone else in the world. And I'm trying to catch up to some of what he knows with an undergraduate architecture student right now. So, uh, can, so these are uh, folded paper things that imitate a hyperboloid, and. Uh, are they really flat? In other words, does the paper bend, stretch, or tear? Uh, something bad happens with the hyperbolic parabolite. So this is very simple models. Originally in the, invented in the Bauhaus, you take a square piece of paper and you fold concentric squares alternating mountain and valley, and you fold the diagonals too. And the really cool thing to me is that the, the paper just pops into this thing. It looks like hyperbolic parabolite, hyperbolic cross-sections and parabolic cross-sections. But we proved, uh, I think, last year that, uh, or yeah, that this isn't possible. You can't fold a square piece of paper with the creases I described. That's so I'm going to do it. That's so disappointing because it really looks convincing, you know. It does. It does. And uh, we're still trying to figure out exactly what's happening with real paper. But there, there are some theories. If you add extra creases, uh, like diagonals in the trapezoids, then it, it, everything works fine. You can construct it geometrically. It looks beautiful. And it's very much like hyperbolic parabolic, but in reality, there's, there's something funny going on. Let's refer to people to your website. All right, it's ericdomain.org, E-R-I-K-D-E-M-A-I-N-E.org. And uh, if you look under papers, you can search for uh, the non-existence of hyperbolic parabolas and pleated forms. Cool, thank you very much. Um, I'm eavesdropping on John Conway and... Tanya Thompson of ThinkFun. Hey, John. How are you this morning? Hello. Who am I talking to? Uh, that's a surprise for us to know and you to find out. Hello. <laughs> um. hey, so, Tanya, t- can you just quickly say something about your company? Uh, well, ThinkFun is a toy and game company, and we produce the best mind-challenging games in the world. And it's been in business for 25 years now, right? right? This is our 25th anniversary. And this is your prime audience, I guess. A lot of the inventors are here, I suppose. Yeah, and Bill's been coming here since the start of G4. And that'd be Bill Bill who? Bill Ritchie, the CEO, co-founder, owner of ThinkFun. And uh, what's your website? www.thinkfun.com. Thanks a lot. Thanks, John. Okay. Uh, Good morning, Carolyn. How are you? This is uh, Carolyn Yackel, and can you tell our listeners a little bit about your work? 
Well, I'm a mathematical fiber artist. What do you want me to say, Haim? So I knit and I crochet, I tat, and I sew. And I think about math while I'm doing it because I'm a mathematician, so I can't help it. So uh, tell us a little tiny bit about your recent book with... Um with Sierra Marie Bel Castro? Well, okay, well there's the book that already came out. It's called Making Mathematics with Needlework. It has 10 papers and 10 projects. So each chapter is divided into four parts where there's an introduction to the lab reader, then there's a part that's for mathematicians that explains the mathematics in a more technical sense. Then there's a part that's for um, for teachers maybe, uh, more of a classroom part, and then there's a project that's for the person that just wants to, to make something, and that is intended to convey the mathematics through doing, uh, through, through making something. It's a really a beautiful and wonderful book, and I'm looking forward to the next one, which will be on. Well, it's, it's, it's sort of on the same topics, but of course different mathematical topics. But the, um, well, the tamari balls. Oh, yes. Well, that's my part is on the tamari balls, but there are lots of other interesting topics in it. Um, and the name of the book that's out right now is? Making Mathematics with Needlework. And that's through A.K. Peters, which is akpeters.com. Thanks a lot, Carolyn. Thanks so much. Good morning, Charlotte. I was just talking with one of your authors. How's it going? This is Charlotte Henderson of A.K. Peters. Uh, so, uh, how's this going for you guys? What's, could you just tell us a little bit about uh, your company and how that fits into the Gathering for Gardner? Um, well, a portion of our catalog is recreational mathematics. Um, sort of, our direct connection with this Gathering is we've published proceedings from the Gatherings, um, but we also have a wider array of books that are perfect for the attendees here. Yeah, and a lot of your authors are here. Yes, it's probably... Myself included. <laughs> probably the largest percentage compared to other meetings that we go to. Right, yeah, no, this is your scene, and it's really appreciated. I mean, this is, it's a Klaus and Alice, and you are really doing great work, so thanks. Thank you very much. And your website? Is akpeters.com. And I know that all of our listeners really will enjoy everything you have, so I encourage you all to go and check it out. Thanks, thanks Thank Charlotte. you. Hey, Carrie. Um, so with me is uh, Carrie Lauder, and he's uh, been coming to these for a long time, and I was just wondering if you could tell our listeners uh, what you do typically here. Uh, this is my uh, sixth gathering now, and uh, I come to the event to uh, try to document it the best that I can, and I uh, try to photograph every uh, lecture and uh, just uh, fun things happening around, all the shows, stuff like that. How'd you get into this? Uh, it was it was kind of a sad thing because uh, Tom Rogers had called me and asked me for some photographs of a couple of attendees that had passed away back in uh, 1999, and I said I had some pictures and uh, could I come down then the next year and photograph it? He said sure. Well, I really I really enjoy the photos you've taken. I mean, I told uh, my family already that you know the best photo I think of, of me has ever, ever has been from one of these. So. Well, that's a tribute. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much. Thanks, Sam. With me is Dale Seymour, founder and uh, creator of Creative Publications, and then later Dale Seymour Publications. Hi, Dale. How are you? How are you doing? Um, uh, so many of our listeners will be fami very familiar with your with both of those companies. And uh, so, who, uh, who's the audience? Your listeners. 
Oh, um, just math enthusiasts. A lot of secondary teachers, a lot of pro programmers, and math enthusiasts. So, um, what have you been up to lately? Well, I have a lot of hobbies. I'm retired, and uh, I play a lot of golf and a lot of tennis, and I make mathematical sculptures that I'm presenting here. Um, so. Uh, I'm having a good time. I'm doing a lot of traveling. <laughs> Sounds like that. Life is good, <laughs> even though I'm 79 now, and uh, I still design posters for my son's company, Instructional Images, and. Uh, and what's the website for that? Uh, Instructional Images, I think. Dot com. Thanks a lot, Dale. And with me here is Will Shorts, puzzle extraordinary, puzzler extraordinary, and puzzle editor for the New York Times. Yeah. Hi, Will. Hi there. Uh, so, of course, what brings you here? Oh, the, uh, so many things. First of all, I have a lot of friends here uh, from the, from the uh, puzzle world, from the International Puzzle Party. Um, and I enjoy the talks. Just lots of great things. Uh, it's really nice to see you here. It's great to be here. Thanks a lot. Thanks. With me is uh, Benji Fisher, a puzzler. And <laughs> what brings you here to the gathering? Oh, I just enjoy uh, the puzzles, seeing the new mathematical ideas, seeing some old friends. So are you a creator or a user or both? Uh, just a user. I've, I've never really um, had any success at, at creating puzzles, but I enjoy solving them. Um, my approach typically is to take a, a new puzzle and, and sort of play with it naively without thinking too hard, just to get an idea of how the pieces fit together. And generally that doesn't lead to a solution but gives me some idea and then then I like to sit back and, and try to figure out what sort of ideas can go into solving it and something that that looks at first like you know just you have to keep trying every possible combination until you find a solution sometimes if you know what to look at you can narrow it down drastically and, and come to a solution pretty quickly well there's a lot of really cool stuff here isn't there there are a lot of nice ideas. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Okay. With me now, with me is Ivan Moscovich, puzzler extraordinaire, and good morning, Ivan. Thank you very much. And uh, so, how does how's the gathering going for you? Oh, gathering is fantastic, and I'm coming over after many years, just as a good listener. No lecture, no and that's enough to be a good listener to enjoy the thing. Yeah. It's pretty amazing, Martin Gardner's legacy, isn't it? Yeah, it's unbelievable, yes. Yeah. And, and he's there, you know, enjoying his life and activates here 400 people, you know, to devote every second of time yeah. for five days, four days. Yeah. Uh, what, do you have any uh, new projects coming out? or Actually, books and games. I'm now at the end of the round, you know, the London Toy Fair, the Nuremberg Toy Fair, the New York Toy Fair, then Gathering, then the London Book Fair, yeah. and all that. So accumulated in two months, and then the rest of the year you sit near four walls and do the bloody things, you know, <laughs> until the next period. Um, what is uh, your website? I.Moscovich2. You better spell Moscovich. M-O-S-C-O-V-I-C-H, and then number two, at cello, C-H-E-L-L-O, dot N-L, for Netherlands. And that's an excellent site, so enjoy. Thank you. Okay, well, 
that's it for the break between talks. So I'm going to cut this out and hopefully catch up with you all next uh, tomorrow. And as you can tell, it's a pretty exciting and amazing place. And you can check out something about it at g4g9.com. And I'm also uh, Twittering a little bit of what's happening here. This afternoon, we're installing a great big 700-pound steel sculpture. as one of just 11 that are going in that the participants are all going to assemble at Tom Rogers' house as a giant puzzles. So uh, having a great time. Talk to you all soon. So things didn't quite work out as planned yesterday. A lot of fun and a little too hectic to actually have posted in time. The sculpture party was a great success. And with me, as a bonus, though, is Siobhan Roberts. Hello. Who wrote uh, The King of Space. King of Infinite Space. The biography of um, HSM Coxeter, a fantastic book and a real service to the community. Thanks, Siobhan. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Um, uh, So you're here on a new project? Yes, I am writing a biography of sorts about John Conway, which I've been working on for about a year, following him around, and right now I'm at the Institute for Advanced Study as a director's visitor, so I'm just starting the writing and kind of going back and forth to the math department at Princeton and picking John's brain and trying to figure out what, what is fact and what is fiction. <laughs> well, are, you, are you having fun? Oh yeah, it's huge fun. I think uh, you know John's a really great storyteller himself, so it's been sort of fun listening to the stories over the years. He, um, I, I interviewed him several times for the Coxter book, and then he actually vetted that book. Um, and so during that process, he was sort of regaling me with all his stories, and it became obvious you, that it was... Do you have a favorite that comes to mind immediately? Oh, geez, that's a hard one. Um, let me think. Well, the tongue tricks is, is always oh, good. That's when pretty he, awesome, when yeah. he starts to demonstrate his... <laughs> Tongue gymnastics. <laughs> a rare genetic gift among many. Yes, exactly. So when's the book coming out, do you think? Um, it will be out no sooner than uh, 2012, I would say. Oh, so that's okay. sort of what I'm aiming for. Um, maybe to get a first draft done by the end of this year, 2010, and then a year for editing, and then it takes about a year to get it into production and on the shelves. Well, we'll certainly have to catch up with you then. Do you have a title? Uh, there's a number of titles in the works, but I probably shouldn't. Okay. Disclose. All right. <laughs> well, I'll uh, catch up with you later. Thanks a lot. Okay. Well, thank you. Right. If you want to do this, why don't we sit down? Okay. Let me just. I don't know how far we have to go to get a seat. Do you mind? We could sit on the piano bench or we could go upstairs. Oh, and as an added bonus, Stephen Wolfram. Hi, Stephen. Hi there. Um, so uh, can you tell us about the um, computational equivalents? Oh, yeah. oh, my gosh. So, so a person walks up to you with a little recorder and says, tell me about this basic fundamental principle. Well, okay, so the, the point of the principle of computational equivalents is more or less this. When you, when you sort of look around the computational universe of simple programs and things like that, there's the question of uh, how complicated is the behavior that they show. And you might think as the programs, as you made the programs progressively more complicated, they would, their behavior would get correspondingly more complicated. That doesn't seem to be what happens. Instead, what happens is above some very low threshold, you immediately get to programs that are sort of maximal uh, in, their, in the sophistication of the computations that they can do. And that, that, uh, that has all sorts of implications. It's a sort of basic principle that 
that you know, I came up with from just looking empirically at lots of things in the computational universe. Um, but uh, uh, once you have that principle, there are, there are lots of consequences that, that you can look at and you know, can kind of verify that principle by doing experiments and so on. So, for example, there's an implication that there should be lots of systems that are capable of universal computation. And we know of a few very nice, simple examples. Uh, another thing is that uh, it, undecidability should be really common among systems that are sort of chosen arbitrarily in the computational universe, as opposed to systems that maybe we uh, choose to look at because that's what our engineering has led us to, or that's what the methods that we know how to deal with allow us to, to, to work with. And there are other implications like computational irreducibility, which is sort of a, has the implication that um, uh, when you try and study a system, that you can't expect to be able to sort of jump ahead and figure out what the system is going to do more efficiently than, than just by essentially watching each, each step and doing the same kind of computation that the system itself has to do. So anyway, lo lots of, uh, uh, w one of the things that's sort of interesting about principle of computational equivalence, it's, um, it's something which is kind of, it's not clear whether it's a, a fact about mathematics, a fact about the universe, uh, a, uh, a definition of things. It has sort of a, an epistemological character. It's a little bit like the second law of thermodynamics in that sense. It's not, not in terms of content, but in terms of sort of its, its role um, as, you know, is it something which is talking about the computations that can happen in our universe? To some extent it is. Is it something that is provable mathematically? To some extent it is. Um, and, uh, uh, and so on. So it's, it's something, uh, it's sort of a, a guiding principle that uh, suggests a lot of things that one should study about the computational universe. And it really, this uh, phenomenon really kicks in immediately, like the 2-3 Turing machine and the Rule 110 are fantastic examples. Yes, right. So, I mean, one of the things that, you know, when you, when you make up a principle in mathematics or something, a sort of fundamental principle, there's, uh, <coughs> people say, well, you know, uh, the, the, does it, so, so what's the point of this? Well, the point of this is something very much like has happened in many areas of science, that the, the principle has predictions. And one of its predictions is that these sort of very simple things like cellular automata and Turing machines that uh, uh, look complicated in their behavior should actually be possible to be proved to be universal. And um, it's, you know, we have two great examples. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward over the, over the next probably decade or so, there'll be a few more examples. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, maybe at some point there'll be a, a case where there's a system that looks to us complicated, but turns out to be proved not universal. Right. Um, that would be pretty interesting right. too. I mean, I know, uh, you know, what, what usually happens sort of below the threshold of universality, you get things like, well, first you get repetitive behavior, then you get nested fractal type behavior. Um, and I don't think there's another level of sort of orderly behavior, um, but there are a few indications from, from things in number theory and so on that there might be some sort of additional levels of things. Do you think that the 3x plus 1 problem, the Collett's conjecture, rises to that, whether it's decidable, whether a given number? Yeah, yeah, right. So, so that's, a, that's a really interesting case, and, you know, to try and think about that, I've... I've uh, uh, I've sort of looked at the generalizations of that kind of thing because we know when, when you generalize it to these sort of collections of arithmetic uh, recurrences that we can get undecidability. Sure, like so, Bractran and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. So the question is, how far out do you have to go? We know when you go far enough out, you're, you're undecidable. The question is, um, uh, when, um, uh, when, when you, you know, how, how far away is... is um, uh, is the threshold of undecidability? Um, and, uh, uh, I, you know, I don't know. I've, I've, I've kind of looked at things a little bit more complicated than 3x plus 1, where I get this strong, you know, one gets sort of an intuition, I think, I hope, about um, when one sort of passed. <laughs> intuition is a dangerous word here. 
Well, I, you know, that's the point that, that, you know, as I've sort of explored the computational universe, my initial intuition was totally wrong. Right. Okay. So now, you know, close to 30 years later, um, you know, I've, uh, I've done enough exploration that I, I kind of think, with the possible exception of some of these systems in number theory, where, you know, what, what tends to happen, there are systems where kind of what you see in some kind of visual representation or something is a really pretty good indication of what the system is doing. In number theory, things related to numbers, sometimes there are funny things like what you really should be looking at is the factorization of the number. Or what you really should be looking at is some bizarre continued fraction expansion, but that's not what you kind of immediately see. So you have to put on the right kind of glasses in order to see the um, uh, kind of the, the, what the real underlying structure. And so I'm not sure if there's something like that in the 3x plus 1 problem. My, my guess would be that um, my guess would be that it's probably in the in the uh, uh, sort of undecidable bin, but um, uh, hard hard to that that one is is hard to know yeah. for sure. The, well, um, so our listeners certainly can go to the Wolfram website and see all kinds of stuff. Wolfram Demonstrations Project, Wolfram Alpha, the new kind of science. A new kind of science is online. Yes. And with all kinds of demonstrations and, of course, the book itself, which is a marvelous, beautiful thing. So thank you very much. Thanks. Yep. Thank you. Okay, that really is it. For more uh, information about the principle of computational equivalence, of course, the new kind of science is the definitive source book. I have an article in the this month's notices, March, on Can't Decide, Undecide, which illustrates this through fun puzzles and games, and I hope you check that out. There'll be a link on the website. Well, I hope you've had a good week. We've had an extraordinary one, and we'll catch you later. Thanks.